Okay, so we're going to hit Judges chapter 6. You've got kind of the title there gives you an idea, Gideon's Doubts and God's Grace. Uh, It's one of those ones that just strikes you as you go through it that Gideon just doubts again and again and again. And God is gracious again and again and again. And you can, he can wear you out until you realize that's most of us. Uh, We feel like there are times where God works in our life. I can remember times where I thought, I should never doubt God again after this. And then time goes by and you find yourself drifting back into it. So let's let's take a look at it. Um, And I have there Gideon... I guess your first blanks there, the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He definitely competes with Thomas and maybe passes him uh, as we see how he uh, interacts with God. So you start out, remember we're coming from the end of chapter 5. You had the song of, of Deborah and Barak and it just seemed like things were great, things were going well. It says uh, in verse 31 of chapter 5, The song ends up with, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Sadly, the next verse is uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. So at least the time of judgment was less than the time of rest, but still they did go right back into it. So they sin and God uses their sin to discipline them. So while we don't want to get bogged down in the historical stuff, we want to know enough about it to kind of have a sense of of who these different people are, who are the Midianites. So the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through his wife, Uh, Not Sarah, but Keturah, who he married after Sarah died. Uh, And he gave pretty much everything he had to Isaac except some certain gifts to the other sons. And then he sent them off to the east so that they didn't compete uh, with Isaac. So uh, Midian was one of those. And the Midianites were involved with Moab when they hired Balaam to corrupt the people of Israel. Uh, as time went on, they more and more became the enemies of Israel. So that was the Midianites. And we're going to see how they were involved in this whole thing. So think for a minute, what might be some reasons you think the Israelites, and of course they do this repeatedly, but again do evil in the sight of the Lord. If you were kind of pondering, why did they keep doing this? They had 40 years of rest after this great victory. Can you think of any reasons specifically why Israel did that? I think in the Semasar country, we, when we get blessed and we get prosperity and rest, yep. our distractions become kind of more obvious. Yep. And that happened. Good. So, yes, in the Old Testament, you'll see warnings where God says, when you get these lands and these things that you didn't even, some of them you didn't even work for, watch out that your heart doesn't drift away. So sometimes when life is too good, we're not good at handling it. Anything else? Yep, Nathan. Weren't they discontent and like covetous of like the iron 
Yeah, um, probably a lot of different things that they had. Uh, some of the um, definitely not good things, the sexual temptations, the um, ways of worship that were very sensual and so on, um, probably some of the material things. Okay, anything else? Yep, okay. I think you say when they were history of Gerard's, the fathers the, and the elders did not teach the younger generations like they needed to. Right, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of times it's around 40 years, so after a generation goes, you know, probably both the sense that the people who were left didn't all directly see what God did and that they perhaps weren't taught well either. It doesn't specifically come out with all of that, but certainly the fact that they were among these people that um, tended to have a, an ungodly influence uh, and then perhaps weren't taught well uh, by their fathers and mothers. All right, so Midian was south of Canaan, uh, down near Egypt. It was a desert land. Uh, their secret weapon, if there was one, was the camels, uh, because they could take about 200 pounds and go faster than a man, so they could get to where they needed to get and bring what they needed to bring. But of course, the, the overarching thing is that God uh, had given Israel into their hands. So those other things are sort of secondary. So the Midianites had a strategy. They would let the Israelites do all the work. So let them grow the crops, raise the animals. When they got to a, a good point uh, during the harvest, the Midianites would come in. Uh, it says in verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. And again, the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, um, who was the grandson of Esau. So again, that lineage and they were desert dwellers. They lived just south of Judah. Uh, it says they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. And Gaza is all the way over at the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So that's basically saying from east to west, the whole uh, breadth of Israel, they would uh, do all this stealing and destruction. So they just decimated their uh, crops and herds. Um, and verse 5 goes on about that. So you've got um, another blank there. The consequences of Israel's sin leaves them hungry and humiliated, uh, but with hope. And the hope is only because God is part of the picture and they are God's, still God's people. So when we read things like Hebrews 12, 6 says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And those are New Testament um, teachings, but I do think they have some application here. God's, they still were God's uh, chosen people. He works with them in a way where he's made this covenant. They continue to break it. 
uh, but he keeps responding to their cries when they get uh, desperate. And really, that's, that's the same hope we have, that uh, when we uh, sin, when we rebel, when we drift away, that God uses things, and, and again, they are really evidences that he still loves us, uh, that he doesn't just allow us. When, when somebody seems to be drifting away from God and you wonder if they're even believers, and life is just fine, untroubled, uh, I usually think that's not a great sign. Uh, better that, that God would give them struggles and troubles that tend to at least turn them back. And that's, that's certainly what we see happened uh, with Israel. Verse 6 uh, of chapter 6 says, So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. So you've got them getting very low and getting very desperate. A um, couple of passages that just highlight the, really the good effects of that kind of being brought low. Uh, in, in many ways, you feel like that's, that's where there's hope. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Or Isaiah 66, 2, to this one I will look, to him who is humble, and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. And there are lots more like that, where God, uh, first of all, when we're brought low, is usually when we actually seek God. And that's also, he has a special ear for those who are, are humbled before him and who are uh, desperate. Uh, and that's the next one, God answers their desperate cries. And think for a minute, I guess, two things. One is in scripture, who you can think of that uh, in their desperation they came to God and God answered. And then even... Uh, in your own life, um, as I was thinking about this, I won't give you the whole stories, but I have two very specific times in my life when I would say I called out more desperately than usual to God, and those were two of the most immediate, powerful times. And again, it's not, we, don't, we can't control God by working up enough desperation but the reality is when he works that into our lives, that's often a time where he pretty wonderfully may uh, choose to, to meet us in that. And he certainly uh, has a lot of times in scripture. Can you think of any examples of that where somebody in scripture particularly cried out in desperation and God answered? Hezekiah, okay, and give us the quick on that one. The king of Assyria was uh, mocking God, even discouraging the people, and he comes and puts in front of him the letters. Good. And then he answers. Good, okay. So yes, they were desperate, desperately in need of God's help. Becky? King David, numerous times. Okay. Yes, he seems to bounce back and forth in the Psalms between, Lord, you're so close, it's so wonderful to, where are you, I need you now. Okay, yep. Okay. 
Okay, so seeking a child. All right, any others come to mind? Yeah, Patty? He was just classified, but Lord, we don't know what to do when our eyes are running and when all the doctors are coming. Okay, good, good. All right. Yep, Jay? Jesus in the garden. Okay. So how do you answer Jesus in the garden? Yeah, yeah. It's not always the the answer that uh, we might want, but okay, yeah. Okay, so give us. When when Jonah finally made it to Nineveh after all his putting it off, they recognized just how bad a situation they were in because of their sin. That was not a calm. Oh, sorry, please forgive us. They were tearing their clothes and lamenting how horribly they had messed up. Good. Okay. To Jonah's unhappiness. Did I see one back there? Yep. Yes, that was. Very good. All right. So, and then you could give a lot of the people who came to Jesus, um, blind Bartimaeus, who they tried to quiet him down, but he kept shouting. Um, the lame man where the um, friends were desperate enough to take the tiles off the roof and put him down in front of Jesus. Uh, I think of the, the woman who um, anointed the feet of Jesus, wept uh, and wet his feet with her tears, kissed his feet. I mean, those, those are not just normal, uh, hey, Lord, how's it going? I'd like to, like to be blessed by you. Um, and I always think of the, the Canaanite woman who, uh, when Jesus at first uh, resisted her request, and she had, and they were saying, "Would you please quiet her down? She's just troubling us." And where Jesus said, "It's not right to give the food to the little dogs." And again, particularly in our world right now, you would just expect, "Are you kidding me? You are a racist. You're this. You're that. You shouldn't ever be saying that. I can't believe you would say that." And she just is desperate and humble enough where she just responds. And of course, Jesus knew uh, ahead of time what it would be. And he says, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. So that woman was desperate enough and again, humble enough that, um, you know, even Christ just uh, ends up commending her and giving her her request. So I, I do think, uh, even think of the verse in James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Um, there is, even though it's not something where we just try to work that up, there's definitely a theme in scripture that we see repeatedly that uh, when he brings us to a place of being humbled and being rather desperate is often when he chooses to uh, particularly strongly answer. All right. Um, so number four there is a prophet is sent to instruct and rebuke the people. So he doesn't immediately send the deliverer. First he sends a prophet. Um, it 
It says, verse 7, It came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet. Um, and the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So he's telling it like it is. Before he delivers them, he wants them to realize why they're in the uh, fix that they're in uh, and that he has done these things for them and that they hadn't responded well. So how does, how does God answer us if we're crying out. Usually he doesn't send us a prophet per se. What does he do? I mean, I guess he's always been in us. Okay. He was, he was, um, we gradually in you, he was, through his work, understanding and peace. I mean, that is a provision he had for us. Okay. Good. Anything else? The Holy Spirit will ideally call to mind scriptures that we have stored in our brains. Yep. Or that we're sitting there reading sometimes, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, so usually, okay, Josh. Sometimes when we're calling our desperately for aid, the problem just goes away. He provides the answer via directly answering the prayer. Mm-hmm. Usually through mundane, through mundane means, but no one's mind gives Okay. So, and that would be more like the deliverer, but the prophet part is usually his word, um, either bringing things to mind that we already knew uh, from the word, or often as we're reading the word, things jumping out a bit uh, that really inform us about our situation. So, uh, we have prophets, but they're, they're written down for us, which in some ways is, uh, so we have lots of prophets. We don't have just one, but uh, often that is how he works, is uh, things in the word that we've probably read a whole bunch of times all of a sudden really jump out and apply. Uh, so his spirit working through his word. All right, so then number five, the angel of the Lord comes to call an unlikely deliverer. Uh, Gideon is an unlikely deliverer. Um, but that's kind of how God usually seems to work. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So again, that's, that's often how God seems to work. And I, I'm going to keep you guys working a little bit. So who else can you think of in scripture that was an unlikely deliverer or an unlikely one to be called into God's service. Moses, he's, he's a great one. I always, <laughs> I love the interaction with God where he says, 
you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm slow of speech, I'm not eloquent. And God said, who made your mouth? So it's just a reminder, God knows these things. He knows what we can and can't do. And it's not a bad thing to have some degree of humility about our gifting, but at the same time, when God calls you uh, to have that trust that he can, he can give you what you need. Uh, okay, so Moses, anybody else come to mind? Becky? What's that? Jonah? Yes. Yeah, Jonah was unlikely from the character slash personality point of view that he didn't seem to love the people he was sent for to. He, yeah, he had lots of issues. He, he was, uh, when we're complaining, we are being Jonah-like. Okay. Take a broad stab here Jesus. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is a great one. So you have this person who's born into a, a little village into a feeding trough, grows up and works as a carpenter, three years of ministry, and then he's arrested and spit on and beaten and mocked and killed in the most excruciating way. And obviously that's not the end of the story, but that would not be what you would expect. Yep. And then you have your disciples, fishermen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't yeah. Now, you know, good. Very basic folks, yeah. And on a smaller scale, um, Rahab, um, who predicted the spies that were sent to Jericho. Yeah. Um, would not expect the prosecutor to be doing that. Okay, there you go. And to be in the lineage of Jesus. Okay, Josh. Abraham. Okay. He did not have any history with God. He was in a pagan country with, with everyone else, nothing indicating that he did anything to warrant God taking a special interest in and then God acted on God's part, called him out on that, and kept correcting him, and kept correcting him, and guiding him. But considering the stories surrounding him, it seems pretty clear that that was not based on some incredibly strong character on his part. Okay. So actually, let me <laughs> let me ask this: Is there anybody you can think of who was exactly what you would have expected? Yeah. It's just amazing. David springs to mind because when he was selected, God was specifically saying, he's not picking his king based on external appearances. He's picking his king based on his faith in his heart. Okay. So that is kind of saying that when David was picked to be king, it was because he already had the right sort of heart. Because God specifically said he was picking mm. him based on his heart. Mm. So interesting, though, what he did later with adultery and murder and so on. So... Yeah, we'd have to sift that for a while. But any outward appearance, obviously, he wasn't the one because that's why God had to say that. But, yeah, okay. So there's, there's not many, if any, that you would say, you know, right from inside to outside, that is just the person you'd expect. Uh, Saul, I guess, had a look but didn't have the heart. So anyway, God, uh, probably thankfully to us, picks unlikely people. Uh, so it's interesting then, um, so you've already had the prophet come, and it says, then the angel of the Lord came, and we talked about that in a previous time, that that uh, is thought to be, and seems, seems pretty solidly to be, a manifestation uh, of God in the flesh, uh, perhaps even Jesus. Um, 
So it says, uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, uh, and those were sons of Manasseh, so they were Jewish lineage. As his son, and here we have him, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So this is kind of interesting because you've got Gideon in there. Um, you know, so they take the wheat and you've got to get the chaff out. And normally, under better circumstances, they would usually do that like on the top of a hill or someplace where there was a good breeze. Um, either throw it up in the air, different things like that that would blow the chaff away and you'd keep the grains. And so, whereas a wine press was usually sunken down in this, these depressed areas, and so I, that's, that's why it says he was doing the wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So, so basically hiding while he does this. And he gets picked on by some of the commentators that you know, he was not courageous. I don't know that I would be so hard on him for that. He's, uh, he's in a time of war, basically, or at least they're being attacked regularly. I don't think that was such an um, inappropriate thing to do. But it is interesting that the angel of the Lord says, uh, calls him valiant warrior uh, as he's down there in the wine press doing that. I don't know that you would have felt like you were a valiant warrior in that setting. Why do you think, I mean, I could just go into what I think, but what do you think as far as why the angel would have called him valiant warrior? Any thoughts? Let's feel like Jeopardy. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so maybe he's looking ahead uh, to what he's going to do with him, what he's going to make out of him. I, I tend to think that's probably it. Um, you know, the other option is that he's being a little sarcastic, but I don't, I, I don't know that that would have been the case. I, I think more likely he was, uh, again, perhaps saying something that would have struck him as, what? But more directing toward what he was going to uh, do with him. It'd be kind of like coming up to one of us and saying, you know, whatever you're aspiring to be, you know, oh, mighty preacher, or oh, always wise mother, or, you know, oh, amazing spouse. I mean, just whatever you know you fail at regularly uh, and kind of saying, here's what I'm seeking to make uh, out of you. So you're saying is what has God seen him that he's gonna make him like that? Not that. Not that he already is. Yes. Yeah. Similar to what he's in the future, but he's making him. Yeah. Yeah. And he will. I mean, even in this chapter, and then even into the next, it's it's a pretty fascinating um, picture of God working on a person so patiently. <laughs> and so graciously, um, as he does with us. So Gideon, uh, and I've, that's where I've got, is the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. Uh, let's think about that a little bit. So 
doubting, and we're going to see several examples of where he doubts. Um, Jude 22 is where it says, have mercy on some who are doubting. We have some other places, and we're not going to do this as an exhaustive look at this, but there are other places that Scripture talks about doubt, and, and generally not as a positive, not as something that you want, that you, you should have faith without doubting as uh, we're sometimes urged toward. But it's interesting, that same word is sometimes used to discern, to decide, to distinguish. Uh, like 1 Corinthians 6, 5 says, I say this to your shame. It is, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to, and then it uses that word, decide or distinguish between his brethren? So it does have this idea of sifting things. Um, Oz Guinness, who probably a lot of you have read, had a book that originally, he, it's, I think now it's just called Doubt, but uh, was originally titled In Two Minds. And that's a pretty good way to look at it. It's, it's you're, you're sort of between things. So it's not unbelief uh, in the way scripture uses it, it's kind of this way station between belief and unbelief. Uh, and as long as you're going the right way toward the belief, uh, it's not even always a bad thing because you're, you've got conflicting things that you're trying to figure out. And we're going to see Gideon has that repeatedly. He's got, okay, well, God, you say this, but what about this? And so I would suggest that uh, while doubt is not something that we should aspire to or uh, that we should, um, you know, want to stay in, it's a, it's a sometimes useful thing when it's appropriate. So uh, Spurgeon had a number of things he said about it. He said, doubt the one who never doubted. He said, uh, the heart that has never doubted has not yet learned to believe. And then one other, often doubts will prevail. What a mercy it is that it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, but his hold of you. What a sweet fact that it is not how you grasp his hand, but his grasp of yours that saves you. So, again, you want it to not be a, a place that you live uh, and always are in doubt about things. Uh, it's more of a temporary way station, but God can use it, and it sometimes is an evidence of a growing faith. So kind of keep those things in mind as we look at how God uh, works with Gideon. Uh, so, yeah, first, uh, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and move into uh, Gideon. He's just been told, you know, valiant warrior, the Lord is with you. So he takes that statement seriously. And so I would say, again, that is, that is the good part of doubt. He asks a question about it. Uh, it says, then Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if, and he uses if a lot, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, so here you have, at least his fathers had told him about them. 
Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So, you know, only God knows how much of, of Gideon's questions was sinful and what was appropriate. But I would say there's at least some appropriateness there in that he takes it seriously. So when uh, the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, he doesn't just go, oh, and the Lord be with you too, you know, just kind of like it's nothing and doesn't really think of it. I mean, he thinks, okay, the Lord is with me? That's, he doesn't seem to be. And here's, here's, so then he's got his if and his why and his where that he asks about. And, and I would suggest I had a um, talk with someone with whom I disagreed, or at least that hadn't been my experience as a believer, and asked them about it. And at first they were kind of not happy. They were kind of bothered, maybe a little angry. And I said, you know, the, the reason I'm asking that is because I'm taking it seriously. I'm, that's not been my experience, but you're telling me this. And if I didn't respect you at all, I just would blow it off and think, yeah, that's, that's just a bunch of baloney. Um, so I would say, and, and so we had a better conversation after that because I really did want to know and, and, it, and sift it, so I took it seriously. And that's really what you see Gideon doing. He's taking that statement seriously and asking about it. Becky Jo. When I read that passage, it was kind of like judging him to go like, are you kidding me? You have a statue right there mm -hmm. in your backyard. Mm -hmm. But do you think then, if it's, he's taking it seriously, if there was for like a syncretism going on and he's really blind to it, because it's like, come on, why? Mm -hmm. You know why. But if he doesn't, mm -hmm. he really, really is ignorant about it. Yeah, I think there's that and the fact, I mean, even if he knew why, which he should have, um, the fact that this angel says the Lord is with you. I mean, I could see you're hiding in the wine press because your stuff's been taken. I mean, sometimes we read these things. I mean, I think you want to put yourself in, you're literally living someplace where you have no protection and where these marauders come in and take all your food and so all of a sudden, everything you've worked on the whole time is gone. I think you could at least say, maybe I know why, but, but I don't think he's even with us. I mean, like if the, if the angel had said, the uh, Lord is not with you because you all have been so sinful, maybe that would have been easier to just swallow down. Yeah. I think the angel of the Lord is bringing God's promises. Mm -hmm. Just to remind you, guys, I've been telling you that all the time. It's a reminder. Yeah. Did you get, do you know that? Mm -hmm. Make it real to think about it. Okay. All right. Well, and you can, as, as we work through this, like I said, I don't know, I mean, I have an opinion, but I don't know exactly where does his inappropriate, sinful questioning happen. Um, and where is some um, appropriate? Like, again, I, I think you can see, I can see where it would be appropriate to go, I, it, this isn't what, it, what I would think it would feel like for God to be with us. This is, we're, we're getting brutalized here and we're starving. Um, now again, yeah, you should, you should understand why to some degree. 
So anyway, follow, keep following along because he's going to ask some more questions. In fact, we won't even get to all his questions because he's still asking questions in chapter 7. Um, all right, so he takes that seriously. Uh, he questions it, doubts that the Lord is with them. Uh, you've got that Spurgeon quote. And then the Lord answers. Uh, it's kind of interesting because he says, you know, how is the Lord with us? And as God and Jesus, uh, as the incarnation of God, often did, they don't directly answer the question very often. It's more uh, a way of answering it that, that gets to the heart of things. So the Lord answers with a call to action for him to uh, more live out or experience the truth. Uh, the Lord looked at him and said, so this is his answer of sorts, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So that's kind of, I'm with you, and you have to be part of this. We're, we're going to move ahead, and you're going to be the deliverer. And it just it reminded me of a verse, John 7, 17, that says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. That was Jesus' answer to some questioners. So that idea of if anyone is willing to actually do his will, he will know of the teaching. So, and, and I think we see that in our Christian walk. There are times where just to sit and think about something, read about it, even uh, starts, but when we live it out, like I've always felt that way with parenting, you know, some of the things in Proverbs that talk about how to raise a child. And, you know, we certainly didn't do things perfectly, but when we applied those things, uh, lo and behold, they worked. Now, they didn't always work instantly, like we didn't spank our kids and they were turned into angels on the spot. But as you live that out, you saw this really does work because the American Academy of Pediatrics would say, it doesn't work, it's wrong, it's, it's hateful. Uh, or roles in marriage. Oh, you know, there's another wildly unpopular thing in our culture. And yet, you go, you know what? This works. There, this can be a source of a wonderful relationship on both sides. So there are lots of things where, you know, you, we take it on faith and you begin, but then you begin to sort of invest in that faith. You, you try to actually live it out. And there's sort of a second level of knowing that this really is of God. It, it works like God says it will. And again, that doesn't mean no ripples on the pond, that there's never, but, but living it out. And so that's what he was asking or commanding, really, uh, Gideon to do. In, in answer to his question, is God really with us? He basically said, let's get going. You've got work to do, and, and I'm going to show you how uh, God is going to strengthen you. All right, so then, uh, unfortunately, Gideon is not through with his doubting. Gideon doubts that the Lord can use him. Uh, he says, Lord, how? So he's already asked uh, why and where and said if, and now he's going to say, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. And I am the youngest in my father's house. What a humble guy. 
Um, so what do you think about that statement? Is, is he being appropriately humble or something else? And if something else, what else? Unbelief. unbelief. Unbelief, okay. Why do you say that? Yeah, I mean, it could be maybe unbelief, but I think it's a false belief. I mean, who am I? Are you kidding? Okay. That's what I think. Okay, so by unbelief, not trusting that God could use him. Yeah. Yeah. Like you are a valley borer, like kind of like us, like we're a royal priesthood. I don't feel like a royal priesthood. Right. Right. I told us I'm a royal priesthood. I don't feel like that, but we are in Christ. Mm-hmm. So here he is, this like guy beating up, you know, my press and the machines and this and that. Like, yeah. Really? I, I think it's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. I think mean, that's the part of the sin, right? Is unbelievable. Okay. Yeah. It's a bit unfair since you have mostly written out here. <laughs> okay. It seems, it seems like his kind of sort of humility is much more man focused than God focused. Instead of having a realistic perspective that he can't really bring anything to the table, God can bring everything to the table, he instead has the perspective that his own personal weakness is such a big, important deal that it's going to hold back God. He Good. has a high view of his low view of self. I like how you put that. You know, I think for me, I just look at my own character, my own uh, struggles uh, in my professional life even. Sometimes when my bosses tell me they want me to do something, I don't want to do it. And what I do is I come up with all the reasons it won't work. Yeah. And it's not really humility at all. It's, it's making excuses. Yeah. Right? Because I just don't want to do it. Okay. So whether this is getting it or not, I don't know. Right. Okay. Yeah, so as Josh said, those two blanks, actually I have, he's more self-focused than God-focused. So, I mean, he may, what he's saying might actually be true. Uh, In fact, it probably is. Um, But it's kind of like, and probably what Moses said, that he's slow of speech. He probably was. But, yeah, it's, it's. I like how Josh put it, that, that my weakness is such a big stinking deal that God can't use us. Yeah. I've been reading Moses last week, and I see a parallel. Moses was hearing God's voice, the voice, but I mean, it was God himself. Yeah. He's the angel, the angel of the Lord. What is the first response of a man in front of God? It's just complete. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm nothing. I think it's more like us uh, knowing his word, we know what he said, what he wants, but it's the flesh, mm-hmm. the questioning, um, sometimes could happen. And I think it's more the flesh coming there mm-hmm. to distorting my body, my understanding of God's power. Even though I'm hearing and listening, Moses. Right. right. Yeah, I think that is in the flesh. Okay. So, yeah, so. In the presence, the appearance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's shocking. Yeah. It gets worse. So, just keep just keep remembering we we're probably not that different. Uh, it's it's easy to to knock old Gideon, but um, but yeah. So it's that idea that God is going to use us, and that we're the most important piece of that equation. That's the problem, because 
again, it's not like they are just coming up with, I think I'll be the deliverer and I'm going to do this thing. Sure, there you might want to figure it out and go, yeah, am I really equipped for that? Am I gifted for that? And so on. But when the angel of the Lord is telling you, here's what we're going to do, uh, or Moses is hearing, this is uh, what I want to use you for, that is, yeah, then it becomes you're magnifying yourself even though it's kind of in a, a humble way, it's not a good type of humility. It's more of a, I do think, unbelief or lack of faith. Um, and that, again, I've, I've got, I don't want to take too much time with that. Who else in Scripture? We've certainly got Moses. Anybody else jump to mind, people who were called of God and basically wanted to wiggle out of it? Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, Jeremiah. I mean, the, the number of the prophets, uh, and, and again, that may have been partly what Greg's talking about. Some of them may just have gone, I've seen how prophets work out. I, I don't want that job. And some of the others may have been, again, just, okay, I get it, but me, really? Uh, but again, we, that's, that's where in our, our own lives, Again, not presuming that we can just do anything because we think we can, but more if, if for other good reasons we believe God wants us to do something that we don't let our own. Lack of faith, fears, uh, and really, uh, you know, I know my own life, kind of a self-focus. I don't want to look bad by failing. Um, so kind of sifting our motives a little bit when we're holding back. Is it... Is it legitimate humility? Like, you look at John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. But he's out there doing everything he can. He's not sitting around um, doing nothing because, oh, poor me, John the Baptist, I'm not as good as Jesus. He's, he's fully engaged, but he realizes with an appropriate humility that Christ is far greater than him. It was a little different, but Joseph kind of wanted out of the thing with Mary at first. Yeah, yeah, that was a little different. Um, all right, so God puts the focus on himself appropriately uh, rather than on the person. Uh, so he has that great brief uh, statement. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So as if the whole Midian army was one person, that's how you're going to defeat them. But so the answer was, I will be with you. Sometimes we're tempted to go, uh, you know, if somebody's saying, you know, I can't really do that. Oh, no, you're great. You could do that. I've seen you, you know. And we're very focused. We're being pulled into that same focus on the person. That, no, you're really good at that, and I'm sure you can. I mean... Again, there can be a, a certain amount of encouragement, but the bottom line is God has promised to be with him, and that really is what's going to make him sufficient, not whatever, you know, wow, Gideon, you've been doing all this work. You've, you're pretty strong. You've got, you got some guns on you. You'll be okay. Um, it's more uh, direct than that, that I will be with you. All right, so then he goes on with his doubts. Now he doubts whether it is really God speaking to him. So again, you go, really? I mean, I don't know what that looks like when the angel of the Lord is talking to you and leaning against this tree. But um, he says, uh, if now I have 
found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. So he's already asked uh, his whys and wheres and whats, and now he's going to ask who. Who is this really? Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. I'll be here. Come on back. Uh, I mean, it's almost laughably patient and good how God deals with us. You just keep thinking there's just going to come a point where it's like, okay, you're, you're really not responding right at all. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost, I, I picture if you've ever as a parent had your little kid, you're trying to get him to jump off a diving board to you. Um, it just strikes me as similar, but there it's maybe a little more reasonable. I'm going to catch you. You're not going to drown. Uh, but it, it often takes quite a bit of coaxing, uh, and it seems like it's kind of like that with Gideon. So Gideon prepares this feast, and he comes back, and <clears throat> the angel of the Lord consumes it in a miraculous fashion. <clears throat> so you've got yet another sign. Um, and then it says he vanishes from his sight. So then Gideon fears that God is now going to kill him, which, again, it just seems kind of crazy. I mean, really, God has come to you. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And then, again, this he's obviously a doubting guy who just doubts that the Lord is even going to leave him alive. Um, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Basically, what are you going to do to me now? Uh, God says, peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. So he knows what his fear is. Um, so Gideon responds well at that point with an act of worship and praise. Uh, it says he built an altar to the Lord um, uh, let me not jump too far ahead there. Um, the Lord said, yeah, peace to you, do not fear. And then Gideon responds uh, by building an altar there to the Lord and named it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an offer of the Abiah's rights. Uh, so at least when this was written, that was still there. And so at least that was a better response. I mean, he's, he's spared, he says the Lord is uh, peace, kind of like maybe not quite as good as Thomas when he's given proof that Jesus, the risen Jesus, really is before him, and he says, my Lord and my God. So then uh, you've got Gideon has to start standing for the Lord within his own family, so verse 25, on the same night, so after all this has happened, all these interactions, uh, it says to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. So again, I, I just think there's a lot of parallels with our lives that a lot of times the battles start in your own family. Uh, you've got this man that God has called out, and he's the son of uh, this fellow who has 
one of the altars of Baal uh, right there in the Asherah as well. So he says, you're going to have to pull that down. You're going to have to take his own, uh, your dad's bull, and pull down your dad's altar uh, first. So it says, Gideon... Um, Oh, and let me go a little further with that. Build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold in an orderly manner and take a second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. So he's supposed to take his father's bull, all these idols, and basically make um, an offering to God with it. So Gideon it, um, was afraid. It says... Verse 27, Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. Because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. And then I've got on your uh, sheet there under M. Um, well, I guess first L was important to put on the Lord when we take off our idols. So. When he got rid of the false idols, he was to put up an altar to the Lord. Gideon was afraid and he obeyed under the cover of darkness, but he still obeyed. And again, just trying to also see the, the good God is working into Gideon, because he certainly wasn't all bad. He was afraid, but he still did it. And I do think that's, again, something we want to aspire to. It isn't so much that when we obey the Lord, particularly in, in difficult places, difficult interactions, relationships, um, standing up in workplaces, sometimes with our family. Uh, I mean, we want to do it graciously and we want to do it carefully. And sometimes you do it very fearfully. We all do it very fearfully. Uh, but the fact that he still obeyed, even though he did it under cover of darkness and it says he was too afraid to do it in the daylight, um, he didn't just not do it. He didn't just run away. He still carried it out. And I do think that's, that was another step where you just see God continuing to slowly build him up uh, into a man who could carry out the purposes of God. Because even though he did it at night, I mean, he was suddenly in the middle of things. When the men of the city arose, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the Asherah, the uh, second bull was offered, they said to one another, who did this? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. So they know who did this, even though he did it at night. And they go to his dad and say, bring him out, we're going to kill him. And it does seem like at whatever level, we're not told completely, but God was getting Joash's attention at least to the level where it says he stood against, um, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. So he says it's going to be the other way around. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. So you've at least got a good fatherly and maybe a good godly response there where he stands up for his son. I mean, he could have, it could have gone completely bad and said, yeah, he's, he's torn down our 
uh, altar to Baal, and, and that was my altar to Baal, and he used my bull and killed another one, and, uh, but he stood for him. So God was, uh, and again, we're not given all the details, but somehow was working in his heart to, to bring that about. And so they uh, began to call um, Gideon uh, Jerobaal, which means let Baal contend against him. And then you've got uh, Gideon's courage and leadership growing because God's spirit is working in him. So behind all these different uh, goings on, uh, you've got the spirit of God beginning to work. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves. Verse 34, so the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Abiah's rites were called together to follow him, so his, basically his clan uh, first, and then sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Um, but so he's gone all this way, and we probably won't, uh, well, well, we'll at least start it. Here's the famous fleece. Uh, again, you, <laughs> you would really think by now He's like, okay, I mean, the, the Lord has shown up in all these different ways, uh, sent an angel, uh, worked things out for me, spoken to me, um, but he needs some more uh, proof and reassurance because he has this lingering doubt whether God will really deliver Israel through him. And I, I almost, you just can almost picture somebody who's like, yes, we're going to do this, and then he's you know, goes home and he's trying to fall asleep and he just starts rethinking through it. I don't know. I mean, this just, this is me. So he says to God, if, so he's still got the if, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know. So he wants to go from all these doubts to then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so, and he squeezed out the fleece, and there's a whole bowl of water in it. Um, but he doesn't really know. He's still not convinced. Again, I think he probably <laughs> sitting there going to sleep and going, maybe that's how it always works. I mean, maybe that's how dew works. Maybe it's like attracted to fleece and, and grass. I don't know. It's a, so... And he says, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. So again, like little kids, once more. Please let me take a test once more with the fleece. Let now it be dry on the fleece and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. So you see two things there. One is he's trying the scientific method. He's thinking, okay, maybe that, maybe I, that was all wrong and that was just a big coincidence because that's how it always works. So how about the opposite? But the bigger thing is God's just so gracious. And again, I think you just got to think about your own life a little more to realize, you know, you just got to look in the mirror and go, God is so gracious because we all do this. We, God is faithful in things and we see that. And then the next time around, we're just... Yeah, but could you do this? Because then I'd really know that you're working in my life. Because this is really the big thing I want. That other thing was cool, but that was like too long ago, and it's fading in my memory. Um, 
So it really isn't an endorsement of the fleece method because people will go, yeah, I just put out a fleece. Like that was a, a good thing. It's one of those descriptive, not prescriptive. And in the big picture, and again, we had weeks we went through trying to understand how to know the will of God. And a fleece wasn't the big take-home message of those talks. So, and scripture, uh, more importantly, would not say so. But, but God condescends many times uh, to do things for us that he, he had no requirement to do. I mean, he didn't owe it to us. He didn't owe it to Gideon. Uh, and yet, um, he did it. And, and he, he st- he's still not done. Uh, we're done. But it, when he hits chapter 7, he's still going to have some more things where God graciously does some more things just to reassure him and show him. So, so you have a very uh, quavering, doubting person. Uh, and I would wager to say like most of us. So God was gracious, and uh, thankfully he's gracious with us. Any last comments or questions? You said the story and uh, that he forgets. I just think that's largely a thread that goes through all the people that doubt his promises and all of us, is that we, we forget about what, who he is, forget mm-hmm. about his promises and he's faithful. And like the Israelites, they kept forgetting. And maybe even one other little minor take home for those of you who still have uh, kids at home. If God can be that patient with us forgetting and doubting and questioning, then we can probably be a little more patient with our kids. Okay, let me pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a patient and good God, that you are gracious with us. Uh, Father, you are not someone that we ever want to purposely trifle with, but yet uh, you do know our weaknesses. Uh, Lord, help us to be able to focus more on who you are instead of uh, always who we are. Uh, We do thank you that you are able to do all things that you purpose, uh, that you even use us to do things. And Lord, we are uh, sometimes amazed at that, and we are very thankful for that. Uh, Lord, we do want to trust you more. Uh, We want to walk in faith. We want to step out in faith. I pray that you would help us uh, each to do that in our own places in the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.